deep dive to the bottom of the ocean this week as we look at another kaiju adjacent film from the master Shiro Honda. This is Kaiju vs. History Atragon. Welcome back, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary beings to another amazing episode of Kaiju versus History. This is your Captain the Kodango, Gotango, Miles, and joining me in submerging to the land of Moo is my co-host, Patrick. Patrick, how are you today? Yes, I'm very good. I can't say Gotengo either, <laughs> at least not as cool as yeah. they can in the movie. I, I always say <laughs> Gotengu, Gotengo. So, it's really interesting watching some of these kaiju adjacent movies that Honda has done. I like that we're doing it. And, and my attitude is if we watched all those movies from the 50s from America, we can watch some quality <laughs> ones from Ashiro Honda. And I, I'm really, really fascinated by the, the serious science fiction of the time because not that there wasn't serious science fiction in american film there was there was there's things like and even this island earth which yes yeah. was moved on msc3k but it was done for the movie because it's that was a pretty good movie and so there are movies that are contemplative like honda's science fiction those just aren't the ones that are more popular you know it's not like data or stood still which is also a great movie mm-hmm. it's more of the the bird eye gordon stuff that gets a lot of play and so it's really fun to see stuff like the movie we're talking about this week that, you know, it kind of feels like a bit like what would what today would be like a big budget blockbuster movie. Oh, yeah. But there's still a lot of thoughtfulness behind. Oh, I, I definitely felt that way when we looked at Gorath, that that was the disaster movie of the time. And oh, yeah. I mean, it's it basically really showed the 60s Armageddon. Yeah. And this is you know basically just in a another kind of genre different genre maybe a little bit more grounded (laughs) one but i mean there's like kind of elements of indiana jones you know we've got like a a lost civilization there's Mm -hmm. there's a a war element to it there's there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie atragon so this came out december 22 1963 with of course Shiro Honda back at the director's seat we've got the famous Tomoyuki Tanaka producing it which is why I'm sure there is a kaiju in the film we got an original screenplay by uh, Senji Segozawa Kira Ifakube of course doing the, the music and uh, EJ Subaraya on effects so we've got the full I guess Quintfecta, <laughs> all five yes. of, of the folks that have been, you know, behind almost every single of these Toho Kaiju films back. So, and there's a reason. I mean, I would say even if this movie didn't have a giant monster in it, it would still probably feel like a, a Kaiju film. And- I mean, in terms of a lot of the tropes that go on to be prevalent in in kaiju films, I would agree. Honestly, the least impressive thing about this movie is the kaiju. <laughs> yeah, we will get to that. And yeah, but it was a big film for Toho. Atragon filled its annual December release slot, which we've talked about on the podcast before. It's one of the biggest times of year, you know, for theatrical releases. Like it is here stateside, but I think it's a little, it's really like the summertime and, and Christmas. Um, Christmas. Yeah. Specifically a few days before Christmas, I think until the end of the year, it's basically the entirety of Japan is on holiday. And yeah, so that's why you will see a lot of these big, big movies coming out at that time. But yeah, it, of course, Miles was not called Atragon in Japan. That's what we know it as. Yeah. So, and then that, I, that was the wild thing. So yeah, we'll go ahead and tell us uh, what's in the title because this was interesting to read about because, you it's know, so confusing. It's, it's not the first time that something happens like this in, mm-hmm. in these movies, but it is the first time where, I mean, for me, like the, the title 
of the Japanese release seems to have a completely different, I think, spirit to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of. So it's so interesting. The word Atragon. It's a contraction, isn't it? Is in. Yes. But it is also in the movie. They refer to the Gotengo as the Atragon, <laughs> but only for a short time. They, I, I think it's mostly the the people of Mu that call it that. Like, that's what it was called on the blueprint. So that's how they know it as. But when they introduce the ship, it's like, no, this is the Gotengu. And that's how it's kind of, you know, called for yeah. the rest of the film. Of course, the Japanese title that you're referring to is Undersea Warship, the, the literal you know translation of the Japanese title. And it is a shortening of the novel on which it is very loosely based in 1900 or I, I believe... Maybe that's when it was published internationally. A 1900 novel by Shunro Oshikawa called The Undersea Warship, a fantastic tale of island adventure, very much in a Jules Verne style oceanic yeah, it, adventure, you know, that that's you you might be able to kind of guess the the, <laughs> the plot at just by by that title. But it is a Captain Nemo style adventure, a little bit more militaristic, though. Yeah, so where does the title Atragon come from? Or the the words you mentioned, it was a, a contraction, and and that is that is true. I think there there's some different reports, but some people said that that was going to be a name for Manda, a new name for Manda, combining the words atomic and dragon or Atlantis and Dragon. I it makes more sense if that is also a potential name for the Gotengu, though, because it's I think it's supposed to be an atomic submarine. Yeah, and it's well, it's also weird because these submarines also fly. Oh yes, of course they do. Miles, don't be silly. <laughs> like, like it's not just an undersea warship. Like it pops up and flies like a, like a flying saucer, no problem. Well, I feel like the majority of like its action is <laughs> is is flying around. Which but... which like there's a whole scene where they they fl- they fl- like bring in water to submerge the the Atragon so they can, you know, do a test drive. If it's a bit available to just <laughs> pop up and fly out, why do you need the water? I, I don't know. Was there like just I, there it, wasn't it, like a door, it, was there? There was a big old door. They just fly out and then plop in. I mean, I that scene, maybe maybe I missed. Maybe they did have to go <laughs> underwater, water, but I was very confused as to why they had to do that, because this thing doesn't require water to move. Yeah, so that that's the American title is Atragon, but in other countries we had Atoragon in in Mexico, Ataragon in France. They just shorten it from four to three syllables, which is funny because even in the American translation, they still have. And I didn't watch it for for this review, but they still have people referring to it as the Gotengo. I think at least the promotional materials. Did you watch the the American release or no? I watched. I think the, that's all you the can, Japanese release I could find on Internet Archive. I think you can only get the English version on Amazon, which was how we were going to watch it uh, last year, but it, it, it swiftly left <laughs> Amazon Prime, and then we're like, oh, oh, that's right, yeah, we were going to do a stream for Cosmic Crit. Um, I kind of, I kind of wish we had just so I had the ability to compare the the american and the the japanese yeah because i i watched the the japanese version on the uh on internet archive and they but however they did mention the ship called gotengu several times and then it kind of like switched mm-hmm. to atrion they just all right that, that that's where we are now it's atrion some some interesting titles around the world agent zero four of the submerged empire is the spanish title <laughs> wasn't the agent like 23 <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, Hirahata's <laughs> was agent 23. And I don't think the other agent ever gives his number. No, <laughs> I, I was just thinking it's like, that's pretty high. It is a plot point kind of later on about his number. Let's see. Atragon Superman of the seas is the, the Greek title and probably the most fitting because it gets right to the point. The uh, Brazilian is a Toragon, the flying submarine, which yeah, make, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, that that, that tracks. <laughs> yeah, so let's let's talk about this movie. Let's talk a little bit about what happens in this film. As you mentioned, yeah. there is there is a flying submarine. 
Well, so <laughs> yes, we we do. It's it's interesting because it starts out. First of all, I, I kind of want to bring Ifakube's score up because the the opening theme is kind of this fun, whimsical little tune. And we, I, I noticed a couple times, and, and this is not the first time he's done this. I think he did it in Gorath too. He will often borrow from himself. Oh yeah, this, and this movie I, 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 he will he especially. will hit those Godzilla notes all the time. Well, that this, little Godzilla riff pops up. That <laughs> bum, 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 bum. well, the the military <laughs> theme you know runs throughout this this movie in in different ways. The 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 military march from. 1954's Godzilla and mm. yeah I, I it works very well here I actually think it can be a little heavy-handed in the Godzilla movies but this is this is the military movie you know once we get to the Gatengu it turns into that kind of film the beginning is a <laughs> is a little bit of a mishmash we have like we have some spy intrigue which I think Maybe from Russia with love came out like the same year or, you know, that, that James Bond was already like very big. <laughs> I want to say. And, it, well, and it's weird because the the opening of this movie feels like it belongs in a completely different picture. Yeah. Well, there's there's probably a reason for that. This movie was, you know, we'll talk about the production a bit rushed in in a way that most of the Ashura Honda, EJ Subaraya films were done in that. The filming was happening at the exact same time, and Honda had his dramatic actors, and Subaraya had his whole team doing the special effects. And there's a there are a lot of effects in this movie, so I, I yeah. gotta imagine that they were filming almost you know equal amounts all the time. But yeah, this movie does start off, unfortunately, like a lot of Shira Honda's ones, you know, with a very fun kind of different feel to it. Uh, say what you will about his movies is he doesn't really make movies more than once, you know, at at least not here early on in his career. Yeah. I mean, okay. So this one starts off with a very odd car chase that's superimposed with these guys taking photos of a model on a, I guess like a pier and they become like our main characters, right? Yeah, we and that's, that's the like, wild thing. Is like, I thought they were just going to be kind of like background, but it's like, nope, nope. They, they're. I, I honestly be... thought we would never see them again, and they are <laughs> very, very important to this movie for no real reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I looked it up here. Doctor No came out in 1962, so the year before this, we've got a very large Bond film. So we've got some spy elements in the beginning of this movie. You know, these agents from a a rival warring nation have infiltrated. They've got secret identities. They're kidnapping people of some notoriety and, and trying to extract information. And yeah, we have a little bit of an investigation that eventually introduces us to the majority of our cast, including the daughter of a, well, a long lost captain in the Japanese Navy. That's Yoko Fujiyama playing Makoto and her uncle, I guess, is, is how I think it's a, I, she calls him uncle, but I think it's an adopted uncle. I was about to say, I, I think he like basically adopted he, her. Yeah. Admiral uh, Kasumi had mm-hmm. said that her father basically told him to take care of his daughter before his final mission. Yeah, that's, that's Ken Yohara playing Admiral Kasumi, and eventually we will meet the the man himself, Jun Tazaki, as a, a Hachiro Jinguji. So I, I really, I kind of enjoyed how this, this movie doesn't really mess around that much, it, at least at first. I mean, it's it's pretty upfront and on a, on a good clip. They, they kind of start this mystery. There's this great scene that... Honda shoots of all these agents kind of begin to pop out of the water. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, I, I really wish this movie could get a high definition cleanup because as, as great a job as the internet archive does, it does not do this scene justice. 
now this movie this movie definitely deserves it i i felt the same way about gorath and a lot of its sequences some very cool stuff that needed to needs to be preserved still uh, but there's this really cool shot because you know we're still kind of up in the air of whether or not this this mythical Mu empire actually even exists and we're kind of mm-hmm. given a reason of these it's, it's essentially an Atlantis-like story about this other continent that fell into the ocean. And so, I mean, it's it's something that any I think anyone anywhere can kind of uh, understand and understand the cultural ramifications of it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I appreciate that. But like seeing these 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 beings who were dressed entirely in silver and they're just kind of silently kind of popping out of the water in the distance and just kind of staring on. It's a gorgeously done shot and and we, and we find out that the Mu empire is is a reality this is a thing and unlike the mysterians they are upfront about what they want <laughs> yeah and apparently this is kind of an alternative for i don't think i've really heard of Mu. it's an alternative name for atlantis but it is exactly where they kind of show it on the the map later on just like smack dab between the continents like in the middle of the the ocean and it's it's like it dwarfs like every other continent it, it was massive yeah, it's so big <laughs> on that map and now it's all underwater i guess but yeah the mu empire makes itself known and that sets off the search for the crew of the gotengu they find one of the crew members has come back to japan to I don't, i'm not sure what his mission was he, he was he, gets, he was definitely looking after his after um the daughter of mm-hmm. uh Jinguji. But yeah, that we don't we're never really quite certain. Yeah, and he, he just like you know says he's not gonna give them any information after just a little bit of cajoling, he like leads them right back to this. Yeah. Well, this, because uh, there's a lot of skullduggery because so the crew of an original uh, atomic submarine abandoned the ship. As a decoy, yeah, which is another which like I'm, plot I'm, point. I was like, it doesn't come up really much more than that. I thought that ship was going to be somehow integral. The A four hundred three, yeah. Well, not just that because this was the ship that went missing, and everyone's been presumed dead for twenty years. Yeah, and so what's interesting about this is not only has this entire sect of the of the Japanese Navy been working in secret on this Atragon or Gotengu ship for, for 20 years for 20 years anticipating the problems of another war however they still think the war is going on I, so I mean as crazy as it sounds I wanted to get into the the historical context for for this movie it's a story that I had heard before that there were Japanese military holdouts from the war out on the these islands, you know, like one or two people maybe that were, you know, either not believing when people told them the war was over or were so stubborn or, you know, yeah, <laughs> patriotic. I, I definitely heard the legends of of that sort of thing happening. Well, I yeah, I heard about one guy and the 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 main one that I heard about was Hiro Anoda, who was a holdout until 1974 when his former commander had to travel to to his hiding place in the philippines with a written order from the emperor Showa, you know telling him to stand down and a, a pre he he was actually holed up with another <laughs> soldier teru nakamura who was shot by the i think some philippine farmers you know in an altercation the year before and there were there were holdouts throughout. I think those he was kind of like noted as the last one, but there were dozens, dozens of holdouts in, in a similar vein. But <laughs> I mean, that's 12. No, that's like 11 years after this movie comes out. So that guy was he spent 29 years after the war, you know, still in that kind of prepared Mindset. state. Yeah. So, I, I mean, this is not crazy. There, there weren't a lot of holdouts that were. I mean, found it's, still, it's still, it's still pretty wild. Like, well, yeah, it just, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where fa- fact is much crazier than, than fiction. Oh, the sure. idea of them building it from scratch. Oh, I, I swore the plot was going to be, they turn the I 403 into 
the Gotengo or into Atragon or whatever you want to call it. And they just like added a drill. But no, they built the most advanced submarine in the world from scratch themselves. Well, apparently they apparently the island that they're hiding out on has all of these resources that they can mine and somehow have the facilities for. I mean, there, yeah, no, a, that's that's the thing. Of- they didn't just build the Gotengo, they built an entire undersea base. Yeah. And everything it's, needed for it. It's it's one of those things where you just you let it happen. It doesn't matter. You just let it happen. And yeah. it's fine. And it, I mean this is a good, I mean, clip of of you know, your kind of your kind of pulp adventure. And mm-hmm. I I really wish I mean you have a decent cast of ensemble characters. There's not really a standout. And there's there's a couple things that this movie does that are like there there's a coupling uh, in this movie that makes zero sense and then like someone just brings it up oh you guys must be a couple and they just go with it yeah they I guess he our our main male lead who who is playing is it it's not uh Akihiko Harata is Mu Agent, I think twenty three <laughs> but yeah Kenji, it's it, it's uh, Kenji Takana, isn't it Sahara is. Oh no! Is is he the love interest? I thought it was. Uh, he plays O to Uno, and were, were you saying Hatanaka is the? Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was the yeah. other. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm getting them confused. I'm played by uh, Tadao Takashima. Yeah, so they don't know each other before the start of this film, and when they go on the the journey together, <laughs> like old Yeah, it's just assume they're together, and then they eventually sort of like act together. It's really weird. And 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 not very well fleshed out. There are some really funny parts about this when there are all these world meetings uh, with the UN about what to do about the moves because they make this big this big thing of like you know give us basically all of our colonies back and <laughs> you know the entire world <laughs> right and. <laughs> Then when his or the the news person goes, it only took took ten minutes to decide to ignore them. End of news. <laughs> that that report kills me. <laughs> and then <laughs> we see a lot of destruction scenes in this movie and the next have some of the best newspaper wipe scenes. <laughs> oh yeah, because like, like Hong destruction Kong is taken out, uh, Hong Kong's destroyed. Uh, yeah, the uh, famous Venice. I want to say. Maybe uh, was there a place in the U.S. that was also hit? I forget. I can't remember. And then there's a, a a ship that gets destroyed as well, and all of it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think the one thing we don't spend enough time with, and I I kind of wish we did, was we don't spend a ton. We'd spend time with them, but we don't spend a ton of time with the move. Like, so we yeah. don't really know. I mean, we know their motivations, but we don't really know them. We don't really and, get to the 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 impress of of Mu until like an hour into the film. We, we see her high priest, who's a great you know overacting. Oh, he's he's fantastic. Mustache twirling, uh, played by Hideo Amamoto. Uh, the high priest of Mu is it's just so good. He's such a great great cartoon serial villain. Well, because it's like they have so many things that we they're it's fine that they're not explained, but it also leaves you to question things because not only do does initially it seem like he's in charge, but then he mentions the Moo God who doesn't seem to have a name. It's just well, the Moo God. I think it, the Moo God is Manda, but no, no, no. I think that's just their they their, have their God like <laughs> trapped in a an underwater tank. It seems like it's I, like I, I, I think Manda is supposed to be like an ex, like a, a tool of the God. I guess, and then, but then, yeah. but then you have an Empress. Mm-hmm. Who, I mean, not for nothing, is kind of useless. <laughs> oh yes, she is. Um, at at one point, she she's sneaky enough to press a button on a wall. But besides that, I really thought we were going to get more because she is one of those characters. She a, yeah, she's got a commanding of, presence of Toho kind of cinema that will pop up a lot in their their video games and things like that. I think it's partially to do with her very distinctive costuming that that red hair you know yeah so played I think, I think by kind of- uh tetsuko kobayashi who i believe 
was just found by Shira Honda on the Toho lot. She was filming yeah. like another movie, and uh, he's like, "You've got the you've got the yams, kid." Honda said that he found her to be hardworking and energetic, and and basically that was that was all she wrote. Yeah. And I, 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 that's what it kind of bugs me because I I want to know more about the Moo Empire. Like, I mean, yes, they they do have all the characteristics of your kind of bad guy nation. And oh, this is ours, and we're going to reclaim it. But like, what 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 are they all about? Because there's a whole culture there. I mean, we see hundreds of people like mm-hmm. praying and and everything. I, I'm really curious about like what they're all about. Well, and, in the the biography, that's one thing that Honda said that he wished he had the budget for is he was going to show much more of the the empire, like from. He said he wanted to show like all the different like strata of their cities, you know, from like how they produce things underground to like their their culture in in greater detail, which I think goes to the point of what is this land of Mu, but kind of a larger metaphor in in this story of Japan of yore. You know, this is what we get to as kind of the the thesis statement of of the movie later on. Yeah. And I, I kind of, I, I kind of share his wishes. I, I wish we got a little bit more of the, of the movie because we do have a good sort of pulp mystery with our, our main ensemble until we get mm-hmm. to the, the Island and we find out that yes, this, this captain is still alive and he's been working on this ship. However, he still thinks he's working for Japan and they're like, Hey, we've got this other problem. Can we, can we, can we use the ship for that? And for whatever reason, he says no. Yeah, he's, because, he's very interested in protecting Japan from which, other nations. But when but other not nations the Mu Empire <laughs> are attacked, like, I guess Japan wasn't attacked by the Mu Empire. So he's like, no, they're fine. They're cool. <laughs> like the enemy of my enemy kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, he's he says he's waiting on Japan to kind of come to its senses before he'll lend them his military might. Um, which, and, and then he basically sees, oh, oh. Yeah, they're real bad. Okay, all right, all right. Like we get bombed is what happens. To, and, oh yeah, the the uh, the, the other spy. <laughs> yeah, gets the, a bomb the, the biggest telegraph pass oh, the entire movie. I was really this, waiting for someone to figure it out. <laughs> right, is but, this reporter who looks like a ne'er do well? Like from the <laughs> beginning, he is in a trench coat and he's acting shifty, and he knows way more about everything. Like he essentially puts this entire movie into motion. He's responsible for the destruction of the Mu Empire. And yeah, he's this entire time. It's like, oh, he's the Mu agent. And and, and, and I'm just like, yeah, of course he is. is, Guys. (laughs) Yeah, I I was really waiting for him to peel that chin strap mustache off. Like I thought that was part of his his costume. No, that was actually (laughs) that's just what he was wearing. You know? Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, and it, it's it, it's 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 sort of annoying because so much of this movie is very well planned. It's very well plotted. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some things that I wish we knew, but as far as the, the basic story, everything works. Everything clips ahead at a, at a decent pace, and it's not until the very end where it starts to kind of spin its wheels a little bit. But but even then, everything is fine except for this one obvious character. Who no one no one seems to think one why is this reporter still with us? Well, they they I mean honestly, they, why are half these characters still on this on this adventure? It's like a bunch of civilians. They and give some a high line. ranking officials. They they say you know he's safer if we keep him with us because we know he won't be publishing the story. And it's like okay, mm. well keep him with you. Actually, don't let him out of your sight. He just continues to like wander yeah, off. They, like, oh, they, they let him run wild. And it's great. You think someone is, would be a little like, hey, what are you doing? Because one person calls him out on, on, on wandering on the island. And, and at that point, everyone should be like, hmm, hmm, maybe we should look into this. Now, <laughs> we have now, a burgeoning love story. I guess I, I did want to go into deeper historical context for this movie compared to the book. And there is 62 years difference between them the original book by oshikawa it has now been written if you can believe it or not 122 years ago and it was it was fairly a jingoistic kind of story about this rogue scientist man building a submarine to take on the rest of the world and you know primarily pirates but conquer 
non-Japanese peoples and, and, and showed Japan's military might. And this maybe was a reaction to a fairly non-combative government in the, the burgeoning Meiji period. So this is like industrial revolution, Japan, where just more and more Western influence is coming in and there's an economic boom. And from the 1860s before that, where it was a huge period of isolation, it's, you know, more open than it ever was. And this is the kind of literature that stoked nationalistic pride. And, you know, 30 years or so after it was written, there's right wing extremists that take over the government and put in the expansionist policies that lead to World War II, the invasion of mainland China. Why does Ashiro Honda, who's you know, obviously extremely anti-war, decide to take on this story and well, tell it in the way that he does? It's interesting because this was the same question that was asked of Paul Verhoeven when he adapted Starship Troopers. Exactly. Yes. Very, very similar kind of, I feel, stories. It's like, obviously, <laughs> Starship Troopers has been mistaken as <laughs> a very pro-war movie and not the, the satire and not the satire that it is <laughs> even though the director has said you know would you like to know more <laughs> uh, I, th- I think honda does the exact same thing as you take that kind of of work and use it to showcase why that doesn't work yeah and in well in this movie, the the military might is important in destroying <laughs> Japan's enemies, unfortunately. But there is a scene, you know, of conflict between the retired, more peaceful Admiral Kasumi and the very militaristic Captain Jinguji, of course, where Kasumi compares the captain and his men to Mu. He says, you know, how are you different from them and their their lust for blood and war? And, you know, that's that's Honda saying, you know, looking in the mirror, Japan needs to kind of realize that it doesn't need to become its enemies on the world stage. Well, and and the fast thing is, I, I feel like this the movie's message is that, you know, we need to unite the peoples mm-hmm. like, like most of his work. It has that that anti-war, that pro like, you know, we need to be together as humanity and. The ending of the movie, very similar to the ending of Godzilla. It it has the destruction yeah. of Mu, and it's not a happy, like, we did. Yeah, it's, you know? exactly. It, it's, it's, it's a it's pretty like somber We, we had to do it. Like, there was no other option kind of thing. And they talk about using atomic weaponry in, in this movie. Mm-hmm. Early on, the military, you know, wages that as, a, as an option. And the Japanese, you know, say, you know, we just can't morally make that decision you know for for whatever reason <laughs> besides their their outright hatred of it but yeah i i thought that was very very interesting that kind of uh th- there's another scene later on where G- captain uh, gen uji gets to meet with the the empress of of mu and kind of i think he sees you know like her her hatred and, and stuff like that in her and that that affects him as well. Some good stuff. I think Shira Honda, this is probably some of, of his best, you know, kind of like writing, directing of, of, of actors. I wanted to say that I think he was trying to get a, a Tashira Mifune or something for the, the role of, of captain, but he was, you know, you know, obviously busy <laughs> making uh, Kurosawa films at the time, but the, the actor that they were able to, to get is great. Yeah, and I, I think he, I think he gets some of the most nuanced characters that he's worked with. Mm-hmm. I, I think having the two, you know, military leaders and their their different ideologies kind of at war at with one another for a little bit is fascinating because Han is also, you know, talking about how you know you have this character that you 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 feel repugnance for, but. You can also understand his feelings and his thoughts. And so I like that Honda grants the old captain one last victory while diffusing his nationalism. And he walks yeah. a fine line between lamenting war's horrors and preserving honor for, for those who fought. And it's it's a very fine line. It's, it's very difficult to write that kind of story in a way mm-hmm. where you can look at those things and and parse them apart. And I think 
in terms of a lot of his character writing, it's definitely some of the best we've seen so far. Yeah, yeah. Great, great writing, great acting, directing. Jun Tazaki, we actually have seen in both Gorath and King Kong versus Godzilla, but in, in kind of smaller roles, but will also be in Mothra versus Godzilla, Dagora, Frankenstein versus Baragon, Invasion of Astro Monster. And he is the Red Bamboo commander in Ebera, which I'm excited to go back and, and watch that. It's been a few years. But yeah, it's, yeah. Been a, it's been a hot minute since I've watched that one. Yeah. So talk a little bit about Moo and, and some of the production design for this movie. Wow. Those throne room scenes look awesome. <laughs> the dances. Yeah. Maybe influenced by the fact that a little film released stateside in June of that year, Cleopatra starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. You know, we have very. Egyptian kind of stylized moo <laughs> um, well, uniforms and, it, and, and it's costumes. interesting that I mean because the movie is a, a great movie but it was a massive bomb at the time Cleopatra mm-hmm. right well I mean it costs it I think it the, cost so much money <laughs> the story of that movie was I mean it was like Hollywood legend before it even came out just like the filming of godzilla like there were people reporting on the the production the sets the costumes that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but yeah it did release (laughs) a month before atragon so imagine if you're in japan it it released in japan a month before you can see that and then you know maybe the next month go and see japan take on this this crazy (laughs) huge throne (laughs) scene but yeah i i can imagine when the studios started uh, <laughs> showing off Cleopatra stuff. Producer Tomoyuki Tanaka being like, "All right, we have to, we have to do that as well, and also James Bond, and also, you know, let's have a little bit of kaiju, just a small kaiju story in here as well." well. And it's wild because the fact that they try to smash all this stuff in there, and the movie doesn't fall apart. No, no, this like, is like it's it's wild. I mean, this movie is rushed. Like, I think what they had like four months to make this thing started filming in September, September 5th of of that year and and came out less than four months later, honestly. So, yes, a very, very fast turnaround for that. But like I said, Subaraya and Honda were doing basically what a lot of movies do these days, which is a team B team Mm -hmm. with a director and assistant director. And Subaraya and his team were doing all these amazing effects and multiple puppets for for Manda, multiple, you know, pieces for the monster. There were I think four different sizes of Atragon, you know, for what they needed it for, including a a four and a half meter long one, which cost like 1.5 million yen. Pretty pretty intense stuff when you consider <laughs> I mean just going back to King Kong versus Godzilla and how kind of cheap some of those affects the look by comparison. And this is a, a similarly kind of rushed film. Which uh, you really can't tell until you get to the kaiju. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the movie a little bit more. Favorite scenes, maybe what worked, what didn't work in it. I, I well, will definitely say I. <laughs> we get a lot of reptilicus in, in Manda. <laughs> a lot of kind of... <laughs> Very loose puppetry, you know, which is such a such a shame. <laughs> yeah, and it's a bummer because the 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 idea and and when he a- appears in subsequent games and and features, mm-hmm. it looks a lot cooler. Yep, we're gonna see Amanda on on land pretty soon in Destroy Old Monsters. But yeah, I mean, it's basically this kind of just floating hose <laughs> that that I couldn't tell if if the dragon was also supposed to be on the ship that was shooting out the lasers. No, or if that was just supposed to be like a symbol, I think it's a symbol of them. And I kind of wish they had more of Manda in like the motif of the, the throne room and stuff or yeah. Cause it just, it kind of seemed after the fact. And so, Mm. yeah, you have, you have this, this kind of serpent dragon, kind of coming out of this 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 hole very much looks like a chinese yeah dragon. very 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 much and so it's coming out the hole out, out of this hole and this kind of uh seawall and you know he's caused a little bit of a ruckus but really isn't doing a whole lot 
and gets taken out seemingly pretty easily. Well, yeah. So the Gotengo just has so many different features. It has like a freeze ray, which well, which they 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 they've mentioned that like early on that they had a freeze yeah. ray. Which which you know when you're watching this, one thing we haven't brought up is that the Mu are like mm-hmm. extremely hot natured to the point where when they hold things above ground, they will burn them. And our above ground kind of atmosphere is like freezing cold, which is why you have the reporter character and Akihika um, constantly complaining about the cold, complaining about the cold. He, he sneezes. There's a, he's got a not a full scarf around his neck, but like a kind of a dicky thing. Uh, and he keeps like kind of clutching at his his collar and lapel, you know, trying to mm-hmm. t- trying to keep warm. It's, it's very interesting. And, you know, I guess. It makes sense that Manda would also have kind of that weakness to to cold. But yeah, when sure. they they storm the the heart of Mu, the reactors, and they they freeze all the guards, <laughs> it just Mu really falls apart. I thought they would have they would take out like some of the crew of the Gotengu. Maybe it would be like an even battle. They just have spears. That is like it, <laughs> and they just go down. They get frozen hard <laughs> at the end. That is yeah. I actually I like the scene where Amanda gets frozen. I think it looks really cool. Yeah, yeah, that looks good. We get a, a very quick battle scene where Amanda wraps itself around the Gotengu and it also has an ability to shock <laughs> the outside water around it. So it, it doesn't last very long. I thought we were gonna get a little bit more tense, you know, scene. But yeah. I, they, they should have <laughs> man to go against that that walrus from Gorath. I think that that would be an even fight. They, I guess um, <laughs> they're both pretty equally useless. So I think that would be a, a very fun. I guess fight. he could go on the ocean. I don't know. We didn't really see uh, what a walrus. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, mean, we, I don't think we ever saw the the, the monster <laughs> in the water. But I this would, was I would assume it came. talking about the legacy for this film, the 13th highest grossing Japanese domestic film of the year at 175 million yen so it did pretty well and like i said we're going to see manda in 1968's destroy all monsters but i would say more than manda we get a a extended love letter to the gotengu in godzilla final wars like Mm -hmm. it's so funny that this extremely important to the plot submarine flying submarine comes back from a movie that what didn't even feature Godzilla in it, but got, uh, the the Gotengo has a lot of kind of lore uh, around it. Besides, Final Wars shows up in Super Fleet Sazer X the movie, mi- multiple video games, and there's other similar drill nose cone kind of submarines and, and spaceships that are you know in in various media and and anime and things like that. So. It has probably a little bit more of a legacy than Manda itself, herself, himself. I'm not sure if we ever get a de- oh, definitive for, for Manda. Yeah, itself, I guess. Uh, serpent self. Let, let's get to the rating of this film. I, okay. I enjoyed it a good deal, but we dissect how much we enjoyed it here on the podcast. Both Miles and myself individually rate the movie one to ten in three categories. Personal enjoyment technical and aesthetic elements and the emotional and evocative responses that this generates as a piece of kaiju art. And then we combine them. We got a podcast score. Talk to me about your personal enjoyment miles. I really liked this movie. I had a lot of fun with it. I thought it was a fun science fiction story, very kind of summer blockbustery, just like Gorath. Uh, yeah. And this would honestly make a great double feature of Japanese sci-fi with oh, yeah. Gorath. And like I said, I, yes, it, it lacks a little bit of the world building that I would prefer. But overall, I think it's just a really solid story. It's really fun. Yeah, it spins its, its wheels a little bit kind of in that last, you know, 30, 40 minutes. But I, I had a very, very good time. And so I'm, I'm giving it an eight. Yeah, I, I think I was originally going with eight. I'm going to boost it up to a nine because I think between the trilogy of kind of kaiju light movies that we've done here with the Mysterians and Gorath. I think I enjoyed this one the most and I would probably be the most likely oh, to go back to this. I'm one. a, I'm a big fan of Mysterians. I really am. I'm, I'm, I, th- I think I'm, I'm, I am a, 
a, a champion for that underdog. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of like if all three of them were eventually put on Blu-ray, which and I was only allowed to buy one. Which one would I buy? I think it would be this one. I really enjoyed the Gotengu and I joined the the spy aspects of this movie. Technically, I think it is up there with those movies. I think we we get Super Eyes team really, really doing great things, except with the puppetry. Unfortunately, except with the the Manda puppet, the ship, the Gotengu looks great. I mean, it is the star of the movie and they nail it in <laughs> just about every scene it's in. And, and some things like we see an extended, I don't think there's a cut scene of it drilling into like a seabed. Mm-hmm. And goes all the way in. Like, I don't think they, they cut that scene. There's just stuff like technically really impressive. So I gave an, an eight for that. What about you? So I'm I'm actually going to ding it a little bit more for some of its issues. I think mm-hmm. that puppet is really, really, really rough. I mean, I said Reptilicus and I meant Reptilicus. It's on, it's on the scale of that lizard. I think it looks I actually think the design is great, but I think it looks worse. I I think it only works just in the water. And yeah, the the, the scene of it like swimming away was interesting. Yeah, but that combined with some of the like I said, some of the world building, some of the the really weird romantic subplots really falling thin. I'm for all for those reasons, I got to ding it a little bit more. So I'm giving it a seven. It's still really high because so much of this movie looks fantastic. The destruction scenes look great. The battle scenes look fantastic. Like like Patrick said, the Atragon itself, the Gotengo itself is a very cool ship. And when you see it like kind of drill into things or rise out of the water, it's most of the movie is so well done. Mm. The problem and I think that's why I'm dinging it harder is because the stuff that isn't sticks out much, much worse as a result. And finally, the evocative nature of this as a piece of art. I think this is pretty high up there because of the good Tengu and, and how it stuck around as a kaiju movie. It gets danged a bunch of points. <laughs> I think it it feels like a Shira Honda film, and I think it's one of his best non Godzilla ones. But still, uh, I give it a seven. For, for this movie, I think that it is is probably one you want to to get to if you want to see non-Godzilla Shiohana films. But otherwise, if you're if you're here for the kaiju action, this is not it, unfortunately. Yeah, and I'm I'm I've been kind of torturing myself over whether I'm gonna give it a six or a seven. And I I wanna give this more points just because it's a really good movie mm-hmm. and you know manda shows up in two other godzilla films it shows up in video games atragon has been made into like an anime ova it's you know it's may not have the presence as a lot of things from the toho canon especially the stuff that's related to godzilla but it it still has been present and mm-hmm. has popped up a couple times and honestly this is one that I really think p- that people should see. This is one that doesn't get talked about nearly enough, which is why I was kind of leaning towards a six because it doesn't get talked about enough, but it should be. And I, I do agree with Patrick in that this is probably like, if I'm being objective, his best non Godzilla sci-fi movie in terms of a kind of a Kaiju light film. Like I might be more partial to Mysterians because I think it's super fun. And it has some of the alien tropes I like a lot, but this is Overall, despite some of its technical mishaps, an extremely well-rounded, fun sci-fi adventure. That if you if you like pulp adventures, like Patrick mentioned earlier in the show, like your your Indiana Jones and your Lost Cities, and you know, fun sci-fi globe-trotting adventures, you're going to have a great time with this film. It's really the one thing it, it doesn't have, though, is that like singular lead that is kind of yes. propelling the action. It is very much an ensemble film and and but. that was something I, I meant to bring up because it, it is it is noticeable that there's not a lead character who is kind of moving the story forward you have several lead characters who are working in unison or working against another series of characters in unison but yeah there's no there's no main character to me i guess like the agents of moo or <laughs> you know the the villains are kind of the closest to it but that doesn't really count yeah so I'm sorry, what was your, your final score? 
So it's eight seven seven. So I would imagine that goes up to an eight. Mm. Close enough. I think I have a hard eight. And actually, in in, in this scoring economy, that's going to bring it down to a seven for for our overall podcast score, which is not terrible. I think no, that's a good score. That's what we gave the Mysterians and also Gorath. So it's 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 right there. I'm, know, I'm, I'm actually really comfortable with that. Like my personal enjoyment was an eight. But when counting the other aspects, like I can see it get dinged down and I'm I'm a seven's a good score. And oh, actually, I am I am not unhappy with it having a seven. I think I did the math wrong. No, it was an eight. <laughs> it does go up. You're, you're correct. An eight I, is still an excellent score as well. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, personally, like I said, I'd put it just above those other two. But looking back on it, no, we I enjoyed Goreth a little bit more than you. I think I enjoyed this one maybe just a slightly bit more. But I, I enjoyed this more than Goreth. And I probably gave the Mysterians. Let's see what I gave that. I also gave that a seven for personal. So, <laughs> yeah. like objectively, I, I will say objectively, I think this is the better film of three. Um, They're all kind ret- of on the in same. In retrospect, scale. I do enjoy the ridiculousness of the Mysterians a mm-hmm. little bit more. But yeah, Atragon deserves the higher score for sure. Mysterians is just so ahead of its time. It's so fun to go back yeah, and watch that. I, I think that's a fifties movie. I, I really need somebody. I like, I, I thought maybe with the reappraisal and the, the great biography that was done in 2020 mm-hmm. or 2019, that we would get more some interest. Of this stuff. Yeah. Well, especially after criterion and Janice films got a hold of the Showa era stuff. I was really hoping for more of those movies of Honda's getting, you know, cleaned up, getting an HD transfer, especially Mysterians, Atragon, and Gorath. I mean, yeah. absolutely those three. Who knows? Maybe the pod, this podcast will be the straw that broke the camel's oh, back. They'll be like, they're talking about Atragon. Get to the printing presses. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, final score of it. Sure, I'm sure our tens of listeners will be thrilled. All tens of them. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Kaiju versus history. Email us with any concerns or Kaiju facts at Kaiju versus history at gmail.com and get ready next week by going on to Kaiju versus history.com and uh, well, subscribing where you can and, and liking and all that things for the podcast. New episodes come out every Monday. So thank you, miles. We will catch you here when we return for Another versus movie, another slugfest, maybe one of the most classic of this entire generation. Wings versus scales, wind versus atomic power. That's right. Tune in next time for history versus Mothra versus Godzilla. Oh, boy. <laughs>